Hello and welcome to the Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today, we are meeting Chris Kerr and Chad Sarno of Good Catch and Gathered Foods. Chris and Chad are two of the most recently appointed thought leaders and innovators that UBS supports and celebrates through its Global Visionaries program. Chris and Chad's mission is to use their decades of experience in impact investing and culinary innovation to harness the power of plant-based food to change the way we fish, farm, eat and live. Chris has more than 30 years of leadership experience in startups and venture capital investing, spending the last two decades focused on impact investment in the plant-based food sector. Kerr is co-founder of Gathered Foods and its Good Catch plant-based seafood brand. Chad is a pioneer of plant-based foods and is the chief culinary officer and co-founder of Gathered Foods. He's launched successful plant-based restaurants around the world and worked as research and development chef for Whole Foods Market's program on plant-based eating. He's also the best-selling author of titles like Crazy Sexy Kitchen and the Whole Foods Market Cookbook. Chris and Chad are going to tell us about the urgency and the scale of the challenge facing us all in terms of finding sustainable ways to create our food how they are both driven by impact, but also by making things that are delicious, why consumers will be empowered by choice, why Chad believes his fellow chefs need to get on board, and Chris might even reveal how he left meat, even those once-beloved Philly cheesesteaks, far behind. It's a pleasure to welcome both Chris and Chad to the programme. Chris and Chad, let me begin by asking you both about the journey you've been on to get here. Chad, first of all. I was first introduced to... You know, I was raised on a standard American diet. I was first introduced to the connection between food and health. That's what really got me interested in uh, in the plant-based world was that connection. And I had I had really bad asthma growing up. And someone had mentioned if I stopped eating dairy products, I could get off all my inhalers. And I was ready to do anything at that time. Stopped eating dairy products. And for the first time in my life, I made the connection between the foods that we consume and your health outcomes. So that fired not only a lot of passion to look deeper, but it also brought up a lot of, a lot of anger, you know, in me and that anger, I, I channeled to passion with what I, what I believe in now, what we're doing. All of these experts over the years hadn't mentioned anything of the sort um, that I was going to all these doctors of that connection. And I had to hear from, you know, a non-medical source about that. So, so that's how I really got first introduced between that connection. And that's, that's when I started to dig in. I grew up in restaurants. I grew up in the kitchen. So that's kind of uh, my main role has been over the years has been working with food in the food space. And that just got, you know, I, I wanted to teach is to anybody that would listen. So at that time, so, so I dove into the education aspect of culinary arts. And once you actually look behind that curtain, it was hard to look back. And that was what fueled uh, the years to come. My, my path was a little bit different. I was, I grew up on a farm. My first job was cleaning the udders on dairy cows. I had animals around me all the time. I loved animals, but also loved eating meat. And I was a, a typical child of the seventies and a comfort food junkie originally from Philadelphia. So I would, you know, Philadelphia cheesesteaks were on the menu more than once a week. And in about 2002, uh, I met a woman who was a little bit more forward thinking than I was on a lot of subjects, but it was, it was the moment where I realized, okay, if I'm going to be with this person, I need to start thinking of a little more empathetically about what she wants in our relationship. And as I did that, I started discovering more and more about our food system and realizing that, you know, the suffering that, that goes into making food through animals is, is pretty obscene. 
And I didn't want to participate in that, but I really, really wanted to keep eating meat. I wanted to eat that flavor. I wanted, I wanted that experience. And so I set about uh, solving a, a problem for one person. What was Chris Kerr going to have for lunch and was he going to enjoy it? And, you know, what I like to say is most of the, uh, the number one ingredient in most of the dishes that I ate at that time was disappointment. And it was sprinkled throughout the whole meal. What can I do to make that repetitive? Because what ultimately I was searching for was long-term sustainable behavioral change, namely for me to align my aspirations with my actions. And so I went on a journey and that journey led me to the culinary world. And what I found was that the, the moments that I had my highest appreciation of vegan food was when I was surrounded by the best vegan chefs. And that's the same way in, in any world, you know, the, the best food is usually found by, by working with chefs. And that's how I met Chad. And we had a mutual interest around food and it's a great way to gather and find common ground. And that's what we did. And from there, that was a friendship that's turned into now uh, one that's been involved with a lot of companies in this space and the founding of Gathered Foods and, and Good Catch. Yeah, I mean, amazing, amazing story and some and some great color already. Let's talk then a bit more about, I, I guess, then how, how Gathered Foods built out of that, that, that coming together and Good Catch specifically. So maybe, maybe give us a little bit of the kind of elevator pitch for, for Good Catch. And I guess one of the really important things here is to really give us a sense of not just the need for change, but the urgency of that of that need, how drastic it needs to be, why it's across all food production, but why, you know, sea, seafood specifically in this case is also so, so urgent. Tell us a bit about how Good Catch is trying to tackle a challenge of that scale and of that urgency. You know, where we met was... Uh was on impact opportunity. And this is where Chris and I really started to work together is, is, you know, seeing the impact opportunity. And that was the driver for a lot of this, uh, a lot of our collaboration and particularly around good catch. So, you know, when, when Chris and I were speaking years back around the white space, it was identified as the impact opportunity would be around fin fish. So that's what we're really focused on. And if you look at, I mean, we're clearly taking far more from the oceans than the oceans can give, you know, globally. And, I mean, the statistics are are wild that you read out there, and and it needs to be looked at. There needed to be solutions. So we we thought with the mix of culinary and and impact investment was uh, was going to be the driver to create something really that was going to leave that impact and really um, offer that solution. So, I mean, we always knew also that culinary, from my perspective, culinary is the driver. It's a driver for conversation. It's the driver for uh, for change in a lot of aspects. And if you have good food, if you have good food, and you know you have that similar taste experience and user experience, then you're going to get people to listen. You know. And so we we set out to launch this company. We worked on texture for the first probably year and a half, and then we got into the flavor aspect, where it's a six legume blend is our our base protein that we work with, and we've um, you know launched a number of products since launching about four years ago. Uh, to d- really disrupt the space and offer a solution to diners and, and consumers around, uh, you know, plant-based alternatives to keeping fish in the ocean and off our plates. You know, Chad covered a lot of ground there and, he, and he's spot on. We're not talking about making a big life decision. Do I, do I buy an electric car? Or do I put solar panels on my roof? It's what's for lunch. And did I do better or worse for the world in that bite? And what we're trying to really solve is, is a series, a, a perpetual series of decisions around food and the impact of that. And collectively, it's an existential crisis that we're dealing with. So what we didn't want to do is come out and say, hey, here's our fish, eat this, it's what's for lunch. What we wanted to be able to do is develop a company that could develop a menu of products that all around the globe, they can be adopted. And and our, our thesis is global adoption comes from 
local acceptance and that's local form, flavor, function, and familiarity. And the example I use is don't try to sell a New England crab cake to somebody in Tokyo. You want to sell them what it is they're expecting to eat. And so the, the idea with gathered foods is let's not tell people what to eat. Let's give them a menu of options. You know, we eat between 200 and 300 different types of sea creatures. We eat about 30 different types of land animals. We have a lot of room to work with, which means we need culinary arts, food science, education, and awareness. It all needs to come together with convenience to actually get people to make that decision. And if they don't make that decision for lunch, maybe they'll make it for dinner. And that's the world we're now entering into is a, is a place where consumers are opening up their mind about their identity as it relates to eating animals. And what we're trying to do is give them an option so that, it's, so that it doesn't have to be the conversation of the meal. It can rather be just what they're eating. If you look at the innovation standpoint, I mean, Chris had mentioned two, two to 300 species from the, from the oceans that are consumed globally. I mean, we look at that because we're focused on innovation. We look at that as a massive innovation opportunity. I mean, it's endless. And, uh, you know, looking at, uh, looking at the, the opportunity is just, it's so great across all channels, whether it's retail or whether it's food service, getting in restaurants and, you know, opening new markets. Just on this point about shifting attitudes and the importance of this educational issue, you know, it's so much is about decision-making whilst being solutions driven. And, and Chris, just in particular, because of your experience, you know, in boardrooms and, and, and all the rest of it, how do you ensure that you, the skills you have at your disposal can challenge because if you're being an educator and an attitude shifter this is sometimes some of it's almost philosophical in nature sure you know you've shown you can do innovation you can do smart business do those tools also mean you can confidently tackle this attitude shift and some of these more educational pieces as well i mean i could say yes but i don't know i mean the fact (laughs) is i talk philosophy all the time most of my my conversations are philosophical and they have to trickle down to the practical right and so that's why i say look aspirationally We all want to do better. We all think of ourselves as being pretty good people. But if you look at your day-to-day actions, we can all be a little bit better. And when you know better, do better, right? And so if we're in that world where we can create the environment to move from the aspirational to the action, that's where we need to be. We all have aspirations, whether it's to lose weight or run farther or drive slower, whatever that is, we have those aspirations. But there's a chasm between that and what we actually do every single day, me included, I'm in no way perfect. So what can we do to, to narrow that gap? And that, is, that involves ongoing engagement. You can't change somebody's hearts and minds and think it's going to stick because we tend to gravitate back to a baseline that you, know, you lose interest in something and next thing you know, you're, you're back to, to your original weight. And so the idea is what can we do, in, in not just in, in gathered foods and the good catch model, but working with you know, beyond brands and cheese companies and everybody else, what can we do to make that easier so we move it away from philosophy and we move it into something that's really really practical and that's ultimately what i try to get to in my discussions is how can we talk about something really really baseline which is what's for lunch and and try to get get it down to that practical application yeah and that starts a conversation i mean right there is what the conversation starter is is if you give people a great meal you don't say anything about it you just feed people good food give them the experience that they used to when they sit down and have a good meal it's going to start the conversation you know, so always leading with culinary, we always try and curate the taste experience our could catch and, and all these other companies that we're involved with. I mean, it is, it is, it's critical to start with taste, you know, and if people have that taste and what they're familiar with, then they're going to open up and discuss it. You know, it's going to be far more effective than, you know, hearing somebody talk about not eating something, taking something out of your diet and replacing it with this. We're not trying to do that. We're just trying to show options and we're, we're leading with culinary and taste and experience. 
I call it the, the Frito effect. Fritos are vegan. They're almost a health food. There are three <laughs> ingredients. It's, it's corn, corn oil, and salt. And But we never have a conversation about the veganism of Fritos because it's just a, a delicious thing to eat. Oreos, the same thing. You could be a vegan and live off of, uh, well, eat nothing but Skittles and Mountain Dew, but that's not going to be how you want to live your life. So the real question is, do we, do we remove the dialogue around the ethics of eating animals and instead focus on the experience of not eating animals. And we're focusing on the experience. There's lots of drivers why people might want to change their diet. It could be religion, it could be health, it could be environment, it could be, you know, in our case, animal suffering. All of those drivers land at the same spot and it's on the center of the plate. We can actually help drive that change without having to drive a conversation about why, but rather what are we eating? And for us to talk about food is fun. To talk about animal suffering is never going to be fun. So can we focus on the food and the fun side and let the others, other drivers fall into its place? That's really the, the design of, of how Chad and I approach the food sector in general. Yeah, I think it's so it's so important. It really comes across again through the way that you guys talk about it. Also, I'm recalibrating Fritos now as health food, and I'm going to say, look, Chris Kerr told me so. He, uh, that's it. It's done. Chris and Chad said it, so that so that's that. Let me just ask you a bit though about about collaboration because we've already talked about the urgency and the scale of the challenge. You guys have conveyed so readily already your passion and your 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 interest, your facility to to deal with this. But I guess. Also, it is important to work together. And, and you know, look, we're, we're talking because you've been recognised as, as global visionaries, for which I doff my cap, many congratulations. But what do those kinds of moments of recognition, uh, being lauded and getting to collaborate, what do they mean for this for this broader battle that we're, we're engaged with? Well, we've always been big tent. I mean, the, the fact is you can't be a startup in the food space and three years later expect to be a big player. Oatly just went public after 25 years. Beyond Meat was 10 years in when the, or eight years in when the Beyond Burger came out and really changed its direction. We're working with, in, in a world where these companies are sometimes 150 years old in the case of Nestle. So we don't need to reinvent the wheel around how food moves. We just need to change the ingredients. And so the idea was what can we bring that's innovative and then plug into the reality of food, which moves slowly. You, know, you can't distribute your food over an iPhone. It needs to move in the old world wheels on the ground tradition. And so when we looked at this, we thought, what can we bring? And then who can we partner with to help bring it to the consumer? And if you look at, you know, there's a big moment when Cargill redefined itself as a, from a meat company to a protein company, right? And then all others kind of followed, shift along that. If a consumer is asking for something, it's a lot cheaper to give them what they're asking for than it is to try to convince them to buy something else. So if they're asking for plant-based, sell them plant-based. And that's what we effectively wanted to do is say, we will give you the tools to satisfy what your, what your consumers are looking for. But you have to do it in a good way. I mean, you can't come up and say, this is, here's, a, here's my meat analog, isn't it amazing? The consumer will tell you if it's an amazing product. And then you have to work with the consumer to make sure that it's matched over and over again. And that's where Chad's job in, in perpetual innovation in our cultivated food labs team in their perpetual food science perfection, all of those things have to come together for the experience. If the experience is good, the rest kind of falls into place. And that's why Chad has to lead this thing as a chef. A chef tells you where the bullseye is. I don't go to a, a textile manufacturer to design my clothes, I'm going to go to a fashion designer and food's the same way. So that's that's Chad's role is to really set the bar there. 
Well, yeah, Chad, and I, actually, I was going to ask you a little bit about, well, a sort of a corollary to this, which is in, in this game of then changing perceptions or, or perhaps correcting misperceptions, I should say more accurately, around not just plant-based, but around this idea of making it be about the food and about that conversation. You've demonstrated, again, over many years that you can do scale without without compromise. We see that with all the projects you've been involved in down the years and also with your books and all the rest of it. Is that uh, how do you gauge where we're at in, in this in this sort of campaign? Because the scale of the challenge, as we've said, is so is so vast. Is it something that you you can feel yourself winning it, even even if it's only incremental? Yeah, I mean, I think we get wins every day. You know, I think we get wins every day with, um, you know, if someone were to just sit down and enjoy what I make <laughs> as, a, as a meal and what I'm producing, that's a huge win. You know, to change that one heart and that one mind is massive, right? And taking those baby steps. And and as Chris had mentioned, you know, really focusing on that global footprint, but with, uh, you know, localizing it as well. I think that, you know, it, it, there's there's this massive sense of urgency with with our work. And I mean, to our work in particular is that... Um, you know, if you really look at, you know, the wins, I mean, where do I'm, I, we're both ethical vegans personally, and I won't stop my work until I can do my best to alleviate as much suffering as possible. And if you look at the oceans, the oceans are a prime conversation around that because they haven't been looked at until recently, Tom, you know, I mean, if you look at, you know, people talk about sustainable seafood and truly the only sustainable seafood is seafood that allows fish to stay in the ocean. You know, it's abundantly clear that we totally need a new approach to seafood, and that's where Good Catch steps in. I don't think that there's going to be that benchmark and sort of that milestone of like, yay, we did it, you know, mm. uh, because we have this sense of urgency and because we're we're driven by impact. I think it will be, I think once it's readily available and there's solutions out there and there's there's choice out there, I mean, the power of choice is amazing. And, you know, as Chris had mentioned, it's, uh, you know, a lot of these drivers, you know, you, you're seeing this sort of going from trend to mega trend to just being the norm. You're seeing these large investment companies, animal ag companies, all these large ingredient companies all listen to the consumers. And so the demand is there, you know, hopefully the impact is going to start showing with, you know, more solutions that are coming to market. So. Yeah. I think you're seeing a generational shift. Each generation that comes around, it's almost a, a tripling of activity in there. So I'm, I'm, what am I? I'm Gen X somewhere in there. <laughs> And then you've got millennials who really kind of came in and kicked it up, but the Gen Z is on fire. And if you look at Gen Z right now, you're looking at like 70% of them are identifying as flexitarian. Uh, the stigma that used to be around being vegan, when I went vegan in 2002, it was the talk of the room because I'd eaten so many Philly cheesesteaks in my life that everybody was wondering what had gone wrong with my head. But nowadays it's a non-event. If you eat non-dairy, nobody cares. If you eat plant-based meat, nobody cares. Nobody's talking about it as it's the subject matter of the table because there's other things that are more interesting. So the stigma is kind of going away as the generations kind of come along. That's because the food has gotten better. That's the bottom line. The food has gotten better, so the stigma isn't there. You're not giving something up every single time you decide that you want to eat something plant-based. But if, if we were sitting down in the dark ages where we're still eating nothing but tempeh and tofu, we wouldn't be moving anywhere. The innovation that's happening is elevating this and the younger generations are grabbing onto it and running with it. That's phenomenal to watch. When I first moved to Woodstock, we had one vegetarian restaurant in town. Now every single restaurant in not just this town, but every town around it has vegan options. We have too many choices at this point, which is a really nice milestone for us because it used to be we'd have one or two. 
Well, yeah, and just just on this point about how you know the the uh, the enthusiasm, the vigor, the dynamism that comes with those generational shifts that you've described, I think really smartly there. A Gen Z though going to get the kind of performance that they want from? We know they're getting it from you guys, right, and from some of the innovators. What about the other? And I don't like using these kind of management words, but you know the other stakeholders, be these public or private bodies. There are definitely people who are still dragging their feet, and there continue to be lots of people whose interests are set pretty much squarely against even you guys, despite it being the ethical thing to do, the right thing to do. Who who needs to move the most and fastest in your view to make sure they're not dragging their feet and that they are delivering what plainly, as you both say so so eloquently, the public are demanding. Uh, from I say this very biasly, but I, chefs, I, I would say uh, first and foremost, I mean, chefs need to get on board with alternative proteins. Uh, consumers are demanding it. We're seeing, you know, 60, 70 percent of diners are asking and uh, actively seeking protein alternatives, you know, whether it's in the States or whether it's over in Europe. From my perspective, I really do think chefs need to get on board. And if you're not, you're playing catch up. You know, the innovation has come so far, so far from what Chris had mentioned that I would say that you know one of the biggest shifts has been has been you know being able to work with a product that in the same way that you're used to working with you know it's identical product you know whether it's a you know cheese that melts or cheese that melts or or cream that you know a plant-based cream that reduces perfectly or butter that melts or the flakiness of seafood you know so when that shift happened i mean it set the bar really high with our product lines and and, you know, for chefs not to be able to see that and not to get on board, I think that they're they're missing. They're missing the mark. Yeah, it's going to be a really slow turning ship. I mean, it's one point seven trillion dollar industry right now. We're not going to change that overnight. And we don't it'll it'll take a long time just to build the infrastructure for it. So we're going to coexist for a long time together. And even while plant based meat consumption is increasing, so is so is meat consumption. If you look at the correlation between pork consumption in diabetes in China, it's nearly perfectly correlated. So at some point, there's going to have to be some policy changes that will have to change this shift. And if a policy happens at the governmental level, such as no longer subsidizing dairy, but instead subsidizing even plant-based dairy, well, now you're going to start looking at infrastructure that can start supporting this change. And you know, right now we kind of eat what's available to us. And so if, if we're putting government cheese into a, into a prison system, that's what's going to be on the menu. And ultimately you have to eat what's on the menu. We eat what's convenient to you. So there's going to be a slow moving turn here, but we actually need time because it's going to take time to build the infrastructure for this. You think about the global food system, everything from planting the seeds to John Deere plowing the fields to, to cargo processing meat, McDonald's putting it on a menu and us eating it. That entire system needs to be reimagined to one degree or another and streamlined. We can do that, but it's going to take a little bit of time. And we're talking about something that's really been built massively since World War II. It'll be really, really slow to, to change that unless we get some policies shifted along the way. Yeah, well, let's hope you get that that, that policy support. And I, gents, look, I could speak to you all day, but we, I, I'm mindful the clock, the clock is ticking. I did want to sort of throw things even further forwards. You've set some incredible ambitions. You've painted such a vivid picture of you know this kind of passion play that you're both engaged with what is next where where can good catch go if we if we look at the the whole the whole setup this whole gathered foods business and how it fits into this broader sort of changing ecosystem what does the future hold is it a question of the only limit is your ambition and your your aspiration what what do you hope that um, good catch and gathered foods can can achieve on your watch the design of gathered foods is that it can move into other directions depending on 
what else we might discover. You know, the reality is if you take our tuna fish and you kind of remove the flavoring of seafood, well, it tastes a whole lot like turkey. Can we make turkey? Sure. Poultry is a really, really, really big opportunity. And generally what happens is when people stop eating cows, they eat chicken. And now you're looking at, you know, about 100 chickens for every cow in consumption. That's a lot of suffering for us. So we are looking at other things we can bring to the table, but it won't be because we build a brand around it, because we will be taking some of our IP and intellectual, our intellectual property and recipes and helping others to improve their offerings. So it has to remain big tent. It has to remain collaborative, but we also have our own interests as stakeholders. So certainly we want to create value in, in, in for our shareholders, but there's no reason that we can't work together. You know, if you look at Oatly at 25 years old, I'm 54, I can't be 80 years old and we're finally kind of finding our way. We need to speed this up. And the only way we're going to do that is, is through collaboration, through joint venture, which means partnering. And if we want to take our products to the Japanese and they tell us, that's great, but this product's not quite good for the Japanese market. We want a different flavor. We need to listen to that and give them what it is they're looking for, not be a classic American throwing our stuff over to a, to a foreign you know, consumer and telling them, eat this. We want to give them what they're familiar with. And so that is going to be perpetual innovation, perpetual engagement, but also localized partners. And we have to have the infrastructure to do that. It's a big ask because it takes a lot of people to do that. It takes a lot of bandwidth. We can't be making products in Ohio and shipping it all around the globe. We have to centralize some of that stuff, localize some of that production. So it's a really big collaborative approach that will take a long time to assemble the key players and a fair amount of money, to be frank. I mean, this is, we're trying to do something pretty big here. Ultimately, it still has to get down to the base. Never forget what was the meal like? Was it mm -hmm. delicious? Do I want to do it again next week? And if we can kind of put those things together, I think we'll be successful. But it's a, it's a long road to hope. Chad, I don't know if you have anything you yeah. want to add. No, I was gonna. I was gonna also say the collaboration piece because I think that is absolutely critical, especially entering new markets. And I mean, just in, in terms of speaking around seafood, Tom, as we mentioned, I mean, the innovation is endless, you know, and the opportunity is endless. You know, from an impact standpoint, we really want to continue focusing, you know, the commodity products that are out there. You know, the species that are used for commodity products globally, whether it's you know, shrimp, salmon, tuna, whitefish, crab, all of those items as sort of the top tier when it comes to seafood and it's those collaborations with with chefs with manufacturers with you know local change makers all of that so uh, it's inspiring stuff and, and guys it's just incredible to to talk to you and and to hear about you know this amazing journey that you've uh, em embarked upon um chad it does sound like you're going to be dispatched off to kyoto or tokyo or somewhere maybe if, if <laughs> i if so, i understand so. chris correctly so. uh you, it sounds like you're going to be you're both going to be incredibly busy but um amazing to hear where you've already got to on the journey and i look forward to uh well yeah kind of tasting the progress uh, as that journey continues magnificently uh, into the future chris Chad, to you both, thank you so much. Thank you for thank your you time. So much for having us. And that brings us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda each week here on Monocle 24. You can find out more about the work of Chris and Chad and their colleagues in this fantastic mission. Visit goodcatchfoods.com now. For more about all the global visionaries in the UBS program, just go to ubs.com and search Global Visionaries. In the meantime, you can listen again to this and every episode, including our archive of other brilliant visionaries at monocle.com and across all good audio and podcast platforms. The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle24.